0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're continuing on in our David series, and the title for the message this morning is You Are the Man. And we're going to be looking at two chapters in 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. Um, before we get into that, though, just want to, by way of review, just mention about last week, we looked at chapter 9. And I preached on the love that David showed to Mephibosheth. You could advance the slide. The love that David showed to Mephibosheth, who was the, one of the sole survivors of uh, Saul's house. And um, really centering on that story was this idea of, Um, how when we are recipients of God's love and mercy, uh, one of the natural qualities of those who receive that mercy and love uh, have a desire to show it to someone else. And in the New Year's message, we talked about this sort of being a theme for 2019. It's a conviction that uh, I believe God has laid on my heart, is that in whatever we're striving to do, whatever we're doing, um, let love... Be the primary motivator that drives uh, those actions, those words, those thoughts. And as I've been reflecting on this whole idea of love being central to everything, I, I think truthfully one of the things I've come to realize is actually, sadly, how rarely love factors in to the choices I make and the decisions I do. And I, I think um, if I try to give myself the benefit of the doubt, um, I try to act ethically. You know, I try to do the right thing, but if I were to really be honest with myself, how much does love actually drive what I do, the way I treat people, the choices that I make, the words that I use? And I actually have come to realize it's actually pretty rare that love is the predominant sentiment or the heart behind which I do the things that I do. Okay? Um, we're going to look at chapters 11 and 12 today. And uh, I, about midway into the preparation for this weekend, I realized that there's just too much here, and it was going to be a, an hour-and-a-half-long message. And so I decided to sort of split uh, it into two messages from this week and next week. And I know I have a bad habit of doing that, but I don't think I've done that for about two years now almost. And so I feel like I get some credit here for uh, doing this just once in, in the last year at least, Okay. So we're going to spend two weeks on the story that takes pl- place here in 2 Samuel uh, 11 to 12. Um, force majeure, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this term. It's a French term that's used in legal contracts. And it's literally translated in the French as uh, superior force, a superior force. And what it describes is an extraordinary event that's beyond anyone's control, that prevents one or both parties from fulfilling the terms of a contract. In America, we refer to these events such as war or hurricanes or earthquakes as acts of God, right? It's the acts of God clause in a contract. Um, Well, in 2014, a Swedish film came out called Force Majeure. And it tells the story of a family that is vacationing in the French Alps in this luxury resort, ski resort, when an incident takes place there that will push this husband and wife to the limits of their marriage commitment. And the first scene of the clip shows the incident itself. Um, I'm going to actually show you two clips from the movie, and I'm going to sort of separate them by sharing a few words. Uh, I've never shown a foreign movie clip before, <laughs> so you're going to have subtitles. I don't know what we're going to do for the podcast, though, because they're going to listen to this, and it's going to be gibberish, okay? They're not going to understand anything that's going on. But this first scene that I'm going to show you will show you the incident, what happens in the resort, and then I'm going to show you a subsequent clip that shows the couple struggling through the aftermath of what took place, okay? And before we start let me also say pay attention to the father to the husband okay yeah. <laughs>
1: Merci beaucoup. Mm, c'est Den är jäkla kraftig mm.
0: You okay? Is it safe? Safe to come up now. Come
1: on. Come are you Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Ja. Ah, så nu vet jag vad det var. Vad fan? Det är fan? Maste, regarde.
0: dramatic, huh? (laughs) Did you catch what the father did? (laughs) It doesn't put men in very good light, does it? Uh, The mother's instinct was to protect the children, and the father basically pushes a stranger out of the way to try to get indoors to get out of the avalanche, abandoning the family. Um, The next scene I want to show you uh, takes place that evening uh, when the couple go out to a restaurant in the resort with another couple uh, and talk about the ex- incident that happened earlier that day. So let's go ahead and take a look at that second clip. Did you guys brave the
1: crowds today? Um, what did you say? Uh, brave the crowds? I mean, I mean, there were a lot of people on the mountain today, so I meant like we yeah. were brave enough to get out there. Um. <laughs> uh, it was great. <clears throat> yeah, it was great. We skied all the morning, and then we... We actually we went home after lunch because we had you know, some kind of uh, experience actually. Um, well, uh, we were sitting at the top restaurant with this like magnificent view. Yeah, you it's know, a nice spot. Yeah. And they had a uh, yeah. We saw an avalanche. An avalanche? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, but I mean. sorry, it just sounds very strange when we say it in English. Ah. An avalanche. (laughs) What should I say? No, it's... Avalanche. No. No, anyway. uh, So we were sitting there and it was... uh, It was uh, like a controlled avalanche. So it was... uh, Controlled avalanche, yeah. yeah. But quite quickly it it grew kind of big. I had never seen such a big uh, avalanche. And it was like... uh, for a moment, it looked like it would smash into the wow. the restaurant. Yeah. It was quite uh, shocking. I, <laughs> yeah, wow. when but I talk about okay? it, I still get this uh, goosebumps. Huh? What would you do? No, I mean, it, this was not much to do. It was horrifying. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. It scared you? Poor yeah. Thing. Yeah, you, you, you kids you, are all right? Yeah, yeah every, everyone is fine. You got a bit afraid, but I mean, it wasn't... I mean, it wasn't that... Uh, it was controlled, and then they, are, they yeah, know you're what they're doing. And he they're got so scared right that he ran away from the table. What? No, I did not. No, 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 no. You ran away from the table. What? No, I did not. Yes, you did. Oh, okay. No, I did not. När laveen kom så sprang du bort från buggen. Nej, det gjorde det gjorde jag verkligen inte. Jo. Nej, 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 Du tog din iPhone och din energihandsker och löp så fort du kunde bort från mig och barna. Bå... Snälla, alltså, vi... ja, för nej, men det gjorde jag inte. Jag minns inte så. Okej, okay. hur minst du? Da? Ja, inte så i alla fall, inte så. But, but, what, what do you... Thomas, but you what you mean? You sprang bort från mig barn, da. inte det. Och, kan man da springe, peksu, liksom? Kom I mean... Um. So, but, yeah, this, I think we're still, like, under the influence from it. It's kind of, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of shaky. But, but, uh, what... Uh, what? Can you not run in ski boots? What do I mean? Thomas says that you cannot run in ski boots. It's ridiculous. <coughs> but isn't this a situation that kind of comes really quick? I mean, how do you know how to react? Is it. Uh, you cannot no. run in I ski mean, boots? Not, not run, run, you can't. <laughs> I'm, no. I.
0: So the argument devolves into can you run in ski boots? <laughs> um, so the rest of this movie centers around these series of uh, attempts for reconciliation and actually turn into confrontations between the husband and wife as she presses him to acknowledge that he abandoned her and the children and what it actually reveals about his character. But he stubbornly refuses to acknowledge the cowardly way that he reacted to the avalanche. And so it turns into this huge he-said-she-said scene. And with each passing day on this vacation, the rift between husband and wife grows deeper and deeper as they start to pull away from each other to the point by the end of the movie, you're not sure that the marriage is going to survive this. I, I think this movie, Force Majeure, is a fascinating exploration of how deeply we struggle to acknowledge our weaknesses and failures and the subsequent destruction that it causes in the lives of people around us. And we're going to see these same dynamics take place in the story that we're going to look at of David. Now, some of you have been saying that the portrayal I have been giving of King David in the series has made you struggle a bit with whether you like the guy or not, today is not going to help that cause at all because this is probably one of his lowest points in his life. There are two names that are most strongly associated with David in the Bible, and each of them comes at a different time in his life, but they both represent a time of enormous testing for David. The first is Goliath. The story of David and Goliath is so famous that even people who have never stepped foot in a church recognize it. David and Goliath go hand in hand as a phrase. And when David faces Goliath in the Valley of Elah, he is still a youth beginning his journey. And in David's world at the time, God is the greatest reality to him, even greater than this giant that stands in front of him. And he longs for the people of God to know the glory of this God who has revealed himself so powerfully over and over again in David's life. The second name most commonly associated with David, though, is Bathsheba. Bathsheba. The story of David and Bathsheba comes decades later after the slaying of Goliath. In this story, we find a much older David, who is now not only a battle-hardened warrior, but the uncontested king of a united Israel. And I skipped over a few chapters in our series here, some of which basically outlined his military exploits, of how he basically conquers one rival nation after another, basically consolidating his power in that region. And so the story of David and Bathsheba begins with this interesting commentary in chapter 11, verse 1 of Second Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Spring, we're told, is the normal time when kings go to war. But this king doesn't feel like leading his army into battle this year. And so he decides to stay home in the comfort of his palace. This already begins to give us a window into the state of David's heart during this season of his life. David is no longer that young, hungry youth. He is not that kid on the battlefield anymore who wants to show Israel that God is real. He wants to relax. He wants to enjoy the fruit of all of his years of hard work and suffering that he's had to endure. And so he lounges in his palace while his army is off to war. And then this happens in verses 2 to 5. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then he returned, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I guess living in the biggest house in the neighborhood has its advantages, you know, because he has this ability to look down at everyone else's property. And as David is looking from the roof of his palace, he sees this woman bathing. And rather than looking away in embarrassment, he stares. He fantasizes. He lusts. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about Bathsheba's role in all of this. People try to read between the lines and say, well, you know, was that normal in those days? Or was she sort of being an exhibitionist by bathing in a way that a man could see her from the palace? And, and there's been all of these questions as to whether Bathsheba might have been doing something to try to woo David in some way. The problem with these type of, this type of speculation is that the Bible itself doesn't go into any of that. In fact, it tells us nothing about what's going on in the heart of Bathsheba and her motives or anything. And so I don't think it's healthy for us to go in that direction. Instead, interestingly, the description that we get of Bathsheba is that she is the daughter of a man named Eliam and the wife of a man named Uriah. Now, what we're going to see in the story is that there are many different ways that Bathsheba is going to be referred to. And each of those titles that is used for her, I think, is trying to point us into some teaching point here. And so here in the very beginning of the story, what it seems to say is this, is that while David is having sexual fantasies about this woman, we're told that this woman is the, somebody's daughter. She is somebody else's wife. But David objectifies her, and he uses his authority as king to have her brought to him so that he could use her for his own pleasure. Verses 4 to 5, which captures the adultery itself, it's interesting, Bathsheba's name is never used. She is only referred to as she and then in the awkward, the woman. It's as if we're given David's perspective on Bathsheba by using that kind of language. In other words, her identity to David doesn't even matter. She is just a woman. She could be any woman that's beautiful. All he wants is to use her. And as soon as David has gotten what he wants out of her, he sends her away. And that's where the story could have ended, if not for one messy detail. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. The adultery is bad enough But how David chooses to handle the problem of the pregnancy reveals just how far his heart has drifted from God in this season of his life. What matters most to David, at least in his way of thinking, is that there has to be a cover-up. He has to cover up the sin to make sure that it will never see the light of day, will never be exposed. And so it goes on in chapters 11, verse 6 to 8. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. David basically, after a little bit of small talk, commands Bathsheba's husband Uriah to be... uh, Go home, and he says, wash your feet. Now, the Bible tends to use a lot of these euphemisms, and this is in all likelihood one of them, which is basically a polite way to say, go home and sleep with your wife. Because his thinking is, if I can get Uriah to sleep with her, then if she get, once he finds out about the pregnancy, he has no reason to question it. It goes on at the second part of verse 8 into verse 11. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, and with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So things aren't going according to David's plan. Because Uriah refuses to go home and sleep with his wife. Because he says, my fellow soldiers are living in tents on the battlefield. How can I enjoy a comfortable night in my own bed with my own wife? You know that something is wrong with what you're doing when your plans are being messed up by somebody's righteousness, okay? (laughs) But David refuses to give up on his plan, and so he tells Uriah, stay with me another night. This time, he gets Uriah drunk, and he hopes that the alcohol will do the trick. And with this decision, it begins to reveal the depths to which David is willing to sink. He is basically getting this man drunk in the hopes that his drunkenness will cause him to compromise his integrity and go against his convictions. This is how cynical David has become. But even in his drunken state, Uriah refuses to go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And so David goes to plan B, or maybe by this point it's plan C, and he does the unthinkable. In verses 14 to 17, it says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die.'" And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So Uriah refuses to cooperate with David's plan, and he realizes his adultery is going to be found out because of the timing of the pregnancy. And so rather than having to live with a daily reminder of his sin by seeing his neighbor every time and knowing what he did to his wife, his solution was to kill the man rather than face his own guilt. David Wolpe comments on this and says, David's sense of entitlement has grown so great that he wishes not only to sin, but to do so with a clear conscience. That's his solution to a clear conscience is kill the one who makes me feel guilty about what I've done. And it's important, I think, for us to not pull punches here, but to recognize just how messed up all of this is. David basically has Uriah, this is how twisted his plan is, he literally has Uriah carry in his own hand his death warrant instructing Job to send Uriah to the fiercest place in the battlefield and then, at a strategic moment, pull back the rest of his troops to ensure that Uriah will be killed. And what's also so messed up about his plan is this, is that David is not only willing to shed the innocent blood of this husband that he has injured with his adultery, But he has also arranged it so that some of his most valiant warriors will be killed as collateral damage in the plan, as part of the cover-up. So even more innocent blood must be shed to cover his sin. I think the adultery, maybe if you try to give David the benefit of the doubt, could be understood as an act of passion in a moment of weakness. But the plan to murder Uriah is cold and calculated evil against an innocent person. And so it goes on in verses 18 to 21. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubashesh? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab realizes that he may be blamed for the death of some of these valiant warriors. And so he tells the messenger to tell David, Say to him, Uriah is dead. Which basically amounts to a secret code between the two of them that says, mission accomplished. Don't give me a hard time over this. And so in verses 23 to 25, the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. And then we get to these verses at the end of chapter 11, verses 26 to 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's interesting that in these verses, Bathsheba is once again not referred to by her proper name. Instead, she is called the wife of Uriah. It's as if the narrator is trying to shine a harsh spotlight on the depth of David's sins and saying, this was another man's wife. So David allows Bathsheba to mourn her dead husband and then afterward takes her as his wife. And it wasn't easy. It took some persistence and creativity. But as far as David was concerned, he took care of his adultery problem. At the end of it, it actually looks like he comes out a winner, doesn't it? Because now he has a son and a beautiful wife. And his sin is secret. Except for one problem. That one problem at the end of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What David did not factor in in all of his conniving and his scheming was the fact that the omniscient God who sees everything witnessed it all. Now, before we go on into chapter 12, I just want to pause here for a minute. I, I mean, it's, the story is just crazy, isn't it? How does a man go from a chance accidental spying on a woman taking a bath to adultery to premeditated murder? I think one of the most disturbing facts about this story is not only how cold and calculating David is in carrying out his plan to cover his sin, but how little remorse he displays through it all. It's as if he has no conscience at all through any of this. And the question is this, how was David able to descend this deeply, this quickly into the abyss of the sin? Well, I don't know if there's just one answer to that question, but I think one answer is this. Sin is always accompanied by a web of lies that enable it to grow to frightening degrees. I think without the accompaniment of these lies that we tell, we cannot sustain life like this. And I think probably the way it worked for David was, I'm the king. And in all honesty, if you look at the annals of history, for David to take the wife of one of his subjects and frankly even to kill the husband doesn't actually stand out as all that surprising. Kings did this all the time. So after all, isn't this the right of a king to do as he pleases with his subjects? Lies are always an accompaniment to sin that enable us to justify our wrong actions, to rationalize and minimize and to deny the truth about ourselves. I'll be honest with you. In my decades of pastoral counseling, one of the things I am repeatedly struck by is when somebody has been caught in sin, in that moment when that person is in my office talking with me, how rare it is for that person to actually feel like they're the offender. But I would tell you that more often than not, despite maybe some horrendous things that that person did, the way it is almost always portrayed to me is almost as a sense that I was the victim in this. Or at least you got to know the whole story and all the surrounding circumstances and then you would understand why I did the things that I did. And so I find that much of my work in pastoral counseling is to wade through the web of those lies and try to get to a place of honesty and truth about the sin. What I find equally disturbing is that we not only, maybe the lies begin as a way to cover up, and so we tell them to others. But I think invariably what happens as we tell these lies is that these become lies that we tell ourselves. And after a while, we don't know what the truth is ourselves anymore. And the question is this, how is, how is God going to penetrate through this thick armor of David's justifications? because it's clear here the guy doesn't feel at least as far as we can tell any remorse over what he's done well the way that god accomplishes it is that he sends his prophet nathan to confront david and the way that david the way that nathan will disarm david and get his defenses down is by telling him a parable In chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan, the prophet, tells this story of a horrible injustice done to this poor man, which perfectly mirrors what David had done to Uriah. And Nathan's parable seems to have achieved its intended purpose because this is how David responds in verses 5 to 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has No pity. Deserves to die? (laughs) He's declaring a death sentence on taking a lamb. You get the sense that Nathan's story has touched something very deep in David, in his conscience, that he may not even be aware of himself. What I find so fascinating about this story is this that with all of that righteous indignation that David feels toward this guy, he cannot seem to connect the dots and realize that he's actually telling him a story about himself. I think that takes us to our next teaching point about sin and deception, which is this. Our sense of justice is so much greater when it comes to the sins of others. Rather, than our own sins isn't that true I mean let's be all honest here when you get some juicy piece of gossip about somebody really screwing up how does that make you feel inside isn't there a little sense of relish in self-righteousness yeah I always thought that about him you know I could see that I said well well, we got to pray for her you know And I think that's exactly what is going on here, is that David could apply the righteousness and justice of God to this hypothetical situation. But he was utterly blinded to seeing how that applies to him. And so we get to verses 7 to 9. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if it were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Basically, Nathan says, You know the guy that you said shall be killed? You are that guy. You are the one that deserves the death sentence for committing capital murder and adultery. And this sounds like one of the harshest things that God could do to a person. But it is actually God's mercy at work in David's life right now. Because it is in his love and mercy for us that God exposes the sin that we try to hide from ourselves. And others. Every instinct and every fiber in our being says when we have done wrong to hide that wrong, to cover it. But God, in His mercy, says what is needed more than a cover up job is exposure, is confession. Because it is in that confession that the door begins to open for God's restoration of our broken life. I want to say this. I think we all wish that the story of David told a cleaner story, don't we? I wish it began with David, this horrible guy, and God came into his life. And somehow because of God, chapter by chapter, we just see David improving as a more and more righteous and godly man. And we've actually been seeing signs of growth and maturity in David. He is growing, but then we get this garbage. And the life of David is so messy. Just when it seems like he is shining brightly as this righteous man of God, he does something like this, so horribly offensive to our moral sensibilities. In other words, we don't get from the life of David the fairy tale that we all hope for to say that when God enters the life of a person, everything is different and everything is going swimmingly great and it's all going to be great from this point forward. I mean, after decades of knowing God, how does someone who is called a man after God's own heart do something like this? As we've been saying throughout this series, though, David's uniqueness in humanity is not that he sinned less than any of us. In fact, as I've said at the very beginning of this series, I think the truth is the majority of us in this room are going to go through life not having done half the stuff that David did. But what is so unique about David is the humility with which he came clean with his brokenness and sin. In chapter 12, verse 13, it says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In other words, what the life of David teaches us, ultimately, is that the confession of our sins brings us to the place of God's forgiveness and mercy. It goes on in chapter 13, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. In other words, what the prophet was saying to David is this, God is more merciful than you because you wanted to kill this man for doing a crime far less than you have committed. But God has shown you mercy and you will not die. When we think Of David and Bathsheba. We most commonly think of Psalm 51, the song that David wrote as an act of repentance. And we're going to actually look at Psalm 51 a little bit more in detail next week. But there's actually another psalm that is associated with this incident, and that is Psalm 32. And this is what David says in Psalm 32 Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. blesses is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. In this great psalm, David contrasts the misery that he was experiencing when he kept his sin in secret, in hiding, and the joy and the freedom and the mercy of God that he experienced when he finally confessed the sin before God and said, I have sinned against you. We'll just close with this, and then we'll go into the communion. After speaking at a conference, uh, this Christian author and speaker, Rebecca Pippert, was approached by a woman who wanted to talk to her in private. And with tears welling up in her eyes, she shared her story with Pippert. She and her fiancé were youth workers in this really large megachurch. And they had this very powerful ministry, ministering to the youth of that church. Many lives were being changed by that work. But a few months before the marriage, they began to have sex and she wound up pregnant. And the prospect of that sin being revealed to the church and to the youth that they had been so heavily invested in was unthinkable. It was more than they could bear the shame of that. And so instead, they secretly had her get an abortion. And this is what this woman said to Pippert. My wedding day was the worst day of my life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride beaming in innocence. But do you know what what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think was, you're a murderer. You are so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. After she shared this, she just fell apart and began to cry uncontrollably. She told Rebecca Pippert that she now has four lovely children, but she remains racked with guilt about that innocent life that she took before the marriage. <laughs> if you were Pippert, how would you respond to somebody like this? What possible words could comfort somebody who is racked with guilt like this. This is what Pippard said to this woman. I took a deep breath and said what I have been th- had been thinking. I don't know why you are so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, abortors or non-abortors, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think that there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Luther said that we carry his very nails in our pockets. So if you have done it before, then why couldn't you do it again? Now Pippert has more courage than I do because I don't think I could have said words like this to a woman that's crying in front of me like this. But the truth of that message transformed this woman as she thought about the implications of what Rebecca Pippert was saying, was every one of us has committed murder when we killed Christ because of our sins. And if God could forgive that act, how could any sin keep us from him? This is what Rebecca Pippert would go on to say about that. The fact is that in the cross, God demonstrates the deepest law of acceptance. For to be convicted, convinced that I have been accepted, I must be convinced that I have been accepted at my worst. This is the greatest gift an intimate relationship can offer, to know that we have been accepted and forgiven in the full knowledge of who we are, an even greater knowledge than we have about ourselves. This is what the cross offers. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's to say that I have seen you at your worst, and yet I forgive you and love you because of what Jesus has done for us, taking our place on the cross. Let's pray. As we get ready to go into communion, I think we actually have time to sing the song. I think we can pace it that way. So let's go ahead and we're going to, I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to sing a song of response before we go into the communion. And uh, let's uh, give this song as a prayer of response to God.